1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Today,
2: welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I'm the host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and indeed honored to have with us three special guests. They are Jeremy Black, Professor Emeritus at Exeter College, University. Oh, Exeter
3: University, Charles. Yes, London. University.
2: Um... Thomas Ate of the University of East Anglia and David Stone of the National, I'm sorry, the Naval War College. And today we are discussing Putin's War, uh, and in this episode of Arguing History, uh, where we attempt to explore and hopefully come to a greater understanding of the dynamics of the current events in Ukraine as they've evolved uh, since. February 23rd, I believe, of this year. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. And why don't we just go into directly to question and answers? And the first one is, as far as you're aware of, did Putin have a worldview when he entered office in 2000? Jeremy.
3: Well, as far as I'm aware, I don't know. I mean, the fact of the matter was he was a middle rank KGB official and one has to assume that he had the views that you would have anticipated from somebody in that position. He'd seen active service, of course, in um, East Germany and one imagines that he would therefore have taken on board the particular, um, as it were, um, legacy of an officer who had served in that area.
1: Uh, I. If- if- oh, sorry, did, G- Jeremy, uh, did you want to add to that? I- no, no,
3: that's, that's me.
1: Okay, good. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, I think if we knew the answer to it, then we'd be a good deal forwarder than we are at the moment uh, in, in trying to understand him. Uh, clearly, the, um, his intelligence background was formative, uh his experience in as as uh, 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 at the dresden residentura in the late g d r times uh was formative and so was his training in in the old k g b so he has very much a secret service uh agent um the arch of the C- secret service agent Um, And I suspect also um, that there was at least the residue of some, uh, I should say, greater Russian nationalism of some kind. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to that um, uh, later on, um, because um, the views that he espoused more recently, they didn't come out of nothing.
0: And uh, if I could just jump in also, I, mean, I, I would agree with my colleagues. The other thing I would say is that when Putin came into office, the general perception, which I think was probably accurate, was that he was a technocrat um, and predominantly interested in not so much, I would say, Russian nationalism per se, but the Russian state. Um, that as a KGB agent, he made the transition to the new Russia and saw what his job was as promoting the strength and interests of the Russian state. Um And we still see that, but I think with some modifications over the last 20 years, we do see some differences in emphasis in the way he talks about what it is he wants to achieve and how he wants to achieve it.
1: I think that's that's very true. Um, And of course, one one also then has to consider the the role of the state in, in Russia, in Russian history in general, and the the strange tension between a, a strong state and, um, if you like, a sort of the alternative to that which is a completely chaotic um, Russian polity. And um, so someone uh, of Putin's background and training would, of course, uh, on the side of strength. And one of the things that he's always prided himself on in interviews and in, in speeches is that he restored the authority of the Russian state. And in fact, he said so quite quite explicitly. Jeremy,
2: yeah, I mean, how sincere was Putin's Western turn circa two thousand one, two thousand three, two thousand four? How sorry could you how how sincere do you think it was in retrospect, his oh, Western I... turn at for those three or four years? No, I
3: I don't. I think um, first of all, I don't think sincerity is something that you should be anticipating for somebody of Putin's character or background. I think there are obviously um, geopolitical problems that he would have gained from the late uh, Cold War, namely the sense of vulnerability of the Soviet Union, subsequently Russia, to a alignment between the united states and china and i think in the um late 90s beginning of the 2000s it was still unclear that china would break with its american alignment and from that point of view it was necessary for russia to avoid doing things that would drive those other two powers together but i do not believe for a second that putin has got anything other than an instrumentalist and transactional approach to um international relations and i think one can take it further i mean i agree entirely with my two colleagues i mean i think what he learnt if you like in his early career is not just a matter of content, but also a matter of process and attitude. and I think from that point of view, the idea of sincerity toward foreign powers would be totally um alien uh, to the um to the culture of decision making uh, that he uh, has pursued and that he intends to pursue.
2: Uh, David Stone has raised his raised hand.
0: Yes, uh, and I I should note that I I work for the U.S. Navy, but nothing I say should be construed as anything official. This is all my personal views. Uh, Jeremy just used the word transactional. I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um, I would use the word instrumental to describe Putin's view of international relations when he came into office at the beginning of his time in power, um, that he saw his relations with outside powers as to achieve specific things. Um, And so if he's going to be nice to the West, for example, assisting the U.S. uh, after 9-11, then he expects things back. Uh, And so I don't think, as with, with, with Jeremy, I don't think sincerity is the word. I think kind of transactional, instrumental, that's the best way to understand that the early Putin.
1: Thanks. Thomas? I, I completely agree. I, this is entirely interest driven. And if you look at the situation um, in the very early 2000s, it was quite clear that given Russia's weakness and the absence of any other serious uh, competitors, um, a, a pro Western or Western leaning orientation made sense. Um, And of course, Putin said all the right things, uh, so that politicians of very different views from uh, George W. Bush to Tony Blair to Jacques Chirac uh, all heard what they wanted to hear um, in his professions of uh, Western orientation.
2: Uh, Alexander Watson has joined us. Uh, Alex, uh, we were discussing the question uh, how sincere was Putin's Western turn, in quotation marks, circa 2001, 2003,
4: 2004? I'm not sure I've got anything to add from what I caught from the end of uh, what everyone else was saying. So so you move on for now, and I, 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 I will listen and catch up with the conversation.
2: Jeremy, how important do you think, in retrospect, uh, was the color revolutions of 2003, 2004, particularly the one in Ukraine, to
3: Putin's adoption of an
2: anti-Western stance?
3: Well, I think, first of all, he had an anti-Western stance from the outset. I think, as, as we've already discussed from his point of view, the, uh, the West played a key role in in undermining the Soviet Union, because you have to remember that an ideological perspective that of communist rule, which combines nicely with KGB interests, is the notion of false consciousness. In other words, the people should, if they understand their destiny and interests, be pro-Russian, pro-communist, whatever, uh, but they are misled by um, um, false Uh, figures internally who look to foreign models. So from that perspective, um, uh, movements like Solidarity in Poland, which we know was a mass movement of great support as indeed was the movement in, say, uh, Hungary and East Germany against communism in uh, 1989. These movements in KGB terms were ones that could be and should be suppressed uh, with firmness against those people who in their terms are revisionist agents provocateurs. And I don't think there's any doubt that um, you see that attitude in the use of um force in the attempt to suppress um, um sort of movements against the soviet union in for example vilnius um and in other places in the last period of the gorbachev regime um so from the if you then wind forward um, from the perspective of putin uh, you have the same Um, situation arising um, in Ukraine, in Georgia. In other words, what you have got there are anti-Russian elements consolidating themselves um, domestically with the support of anti-Russian elements internationally. Now, we know that that is a ludicrous simplification of the situation and in practical terms, in international uh, matters, there was actually relatively little support for democracy or liberalism in either Georgia or Ukraine just as there was virtually none in Belarus um, re- more recently but nevertheless I think that was how it was fed through um, the Putinesque uh, mindset
1: I think that's broadly speaking true um, my sense is that those colour revolutions were uh, triggered by um, struggles within the post-Soviet elites in Georgia or in in, in other places. Um, But that, of course, doesn't um, negate the fact that from uh, the perspective of Moscow, Putin's perspective, there was a danger that these uh, these countries might gravitate out of Moscow's um, orbit or sphere of influence, if you like. And I think that was the real uh, sense of threat that weighed on on his mind. Uh, and perhaps also um the uh fear that um uh, revolutions they, if they if they took hold might threaten the emerging uh Putin model, post Yeltsin uh model of Russian politics. So in a sense I think it's it's uh like geopolitical and domestic considerations that, uh, that uh, came together here.
0: David Stone? Uh, so I would largely agree with what my colleagues have said. There's one thing I would add, though. Uh, so your question, as you phrased it, asks specifically about the colored revolutions of 2004 or 5 2005. Um, and certainly the, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine mattered. But I think here what we're seeing is a kind of cumulative effect um, that, Putin, over time, has seen more and more things that make him fearful, apprehensive, angry at the West. Um, Because colored revolutions started before 2004-5, 2000 in Serbia. Uh, They continued after. Um, There was a sort of aborted colored revolution in in Russia itself in 2011-12, which I think bears heavily on Putin's Mm. mind. Um, And then you add to that the more foreign policy questions like um, anti-ballistic missile agreements. Um, So I think what you see is a a steady accumulation in Putin's mind of grievances, rather than any one particular one that um, tipped him over to being anti-West Thanks.
4: Uh, that's Watson. Alex? So I suppose that um, I just want, I mean, clearly, you know, the, the color revolutions with the you know, big events of the early 2000s. Uh, uh, one of the ways that we could approach this conversation is actually perhaps ask whether we're thinking. Too short term, whether this is just about those color revolutions, whether this is just about putin, I mean if we think about some of what Putin has recently written about Ukraine, his worldview stretches way beyond the color revolutions of the early 2000s or even beyond the Soviet Union of the of, of, of the 20th century and uh, I suppose your question may raise bigger issues about the how Russian leaders, including Putin, have seen their own countries and their own personal interests as being compatible or in constant opposition to those of particularly Western Europe's. What we what we might, or even broader than that, what we might say call the West. Um, and so I think we can sort of we can we can think about, you know, these milestones, if you like. But one thing that might that people might want to think about is is whether this can be put in an even longer term perspective than that. So that's maybe answering a question with a question, but I think it's relevant.
2: Actually, and um, Alex, you raise an important issue, which I didn't um, <clears throat> bring up in my email, but let's discuss it now, which is to what extent would you put Putin in the line of Russian statesmen going back to the 18th century? I myself think this is a little bit of a simplistic and to some extent erroneous uh, question simply by virtue of the fact that Putin bears very little relationship to people in terms of 18th or 19th century Russian statesmanship of, say, Nassel, Rohr, Jers, Lambsdorff, Munich, Osterman, etc., very much European characters, or most of the people I mentioned actually, I think all of them um, not actually ethnic Russians or pravolovni jeremy
3: well, I think it 's an interesting point, this one about uh, long term I mean to my mind we 've had um, a certain amount of rather crude uh, geopolitical writing about looked by people looking for I'm not saying that that's what Alex was talking about, looking for long-term links, because the context, I think, is so very different. Not least, to my mind, the sense that a independent democratic Ukraine poses a challenge to the nature of political society and political culture in Russia to a greater extent than, let us say, if um, Western Ukraine had remained under Polish rule rather than their part of Poland, rather than being the first partition in 1772. So I think that the context is very different. Um, I also think that the degree of phobia is different. Um, If you go back to Russia in the um Muscovy beforehand in the fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth centuries. The anxiety was largely about Tatar raiding. Um, more specifically, of course, the furthest north Islamic State in the world, which was the Khanate of Kazan, which finally fell to Ivan the IV, Fourth, Ivan the Terrible in fifteen fifty two. And I don't, and as far as Ukraine was concerned, while there was a challenge, a serious challenge to Muscovy from Poland, Polish, Polish force got into the Kremlin, obviously, in the early 16 teens. This was very much along the central axis from Poland, the one via Smolensk, which is where um, fighting was concentrated in the 16 teens, in the 1630s. So I think in part what is happening is Ukraine is being washed into an account or which is a correct account of Russia's determination to control what it sees as integral borderlands. Um but having made that general point. Much that is discussed in the terms of Ukraine is not terribly helpful, not least because, and this is the final point, Ukraine was not an independent state, Um, whereas now it is an independent state, it's a sovereign state, and therefore Russia's policies to it are far more Um, uh, aggressive in as far as the international order is concerned than would have been the case if it had been as it were engaged in hostilities with a part of the Ottoman Empire or a part of Poland when the key thing was its relationship with Poland or the Ottoman Empire not the part thereof Thomas
1: I very much agree with what Jeremy has just said um I think the geopolitical context is rather different. Um but I would I would uh, also add to that that um of course Ukraine, I mean as the very name Ukraine suggests, this is a borderland. So it lies at the interface of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Ottoman Empire, um and uh, Muscovy, Russia. And then later the Austrian uh, Habsburg world, if you like. So uh, in that sense, um, here's a tradition, a Russian tradition of dealing with Ukraine not as an independent state that it is now, and that it is turning into even more so as a result of this war, I think. Um, so that, in a sense, is 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 one difference. Um, but nevertheless. It has to be borne in mind that someone like Putin very much likes to think of himself as in the tradition of Peter the Great or Catherine the Great. Um, He actually made great play of uh, this continuity, as he sees it, with Peter the Great in an interview with the Financial Times in, I think, 2019, it was, um, where he said that uh, Peter's course uh, will live for as long as there are unredeemed lands and, and, and Russians under a scattered about in, in foreign territories. And when he gave his first televised address after the beginning of the um, war in Ukraine in February this year, he actually uh, position, positioned himself underneath the, I forget, it was the portrait or a bust of Catherine the Great. So the iconography, I think, was very important here and it was very clear. He does see himself as um, a, a standing in a line with uh, those um, Tsars of the 18th century who added significantly to Russian territory.
0: David Stone? Uh, I would offer a slightly different historical parallel. Um, I, I think, in terms of 19th century Russian statesmen, um, they generally saw Russia as a European power maneuvering within a system of other European powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Putin's rhetoric more recently has been much more of Russia against the West and the West generally. And the historical parallel there, I think, is with some Russian intellectual movements of the late 19th century, um, specifically pan-Slavism. Uh, and that was an ideology that saw Russia as a unique civilization uncontaminated by Western ideas. And this is the West generally. Um, and in these, the, this conception, the, the, the Slavs, and, and particularly Russia as the bearer of, of Slavism, had different ideals of community, of collectivity, uh, that were in opposition to Western individualism, Western liberalism. And those ideologies were never that powerful in Russian foreign policy in the 19th century, but they had some intellectual um, heft within the Russian empire. And Putin, I think, is pulling on some of those ideas of collective identity against Western uh, capitalist, uh, individualism and Western liberalism. the, I, I think that helps to explain in some ways Putin's appeal to the Russian, to the European and American far right, um, that he's articulating a vision of an anti-liberal civilization um, that resonates with certain figures of the European right and, and the American right. Um, opposition to immigration, opposition to gay rights, uh, opposition to feminism. I think there's a number of things there that, that Putin is playing on.
2: Yes, yeah,
3: so I think Washington. that's very correct. Can I just say, I think that's yes, very correct. I think it also links with a, a uh, attempt to provide a cultural as well as geopolitical alignment with China, and I think that the idea that liberalism is something that is not only unacceptable in their eyes in terms of the international order, but also saps the foundations of states. Now, the reality, of course, is, as you can see in Ukraine at this present moment, the power that is sapping the, uh, the reality of state and community is Russian aggression. And it would be exactly the same if we were looking if China was invading um, Taiwan or th- while it threatens its neighbors. But the point is, the ideology is very potent. And I think it's absolutely correct, as our naval colleague said. Um, there is a resonance of this in terms of debates within Europe. Now, the interesting point is, I agree with him that it resonates for the, with the far right. It also resonates with the far left. And this image and this issue is one of those that pulls together the far right and the far left. It's the far left, like the far right, um, has, uh, although it may have a different social agenda, has in many respects a commonality of opposition to um, Uh, well, to a number of um, international planks of order, including NATO, including the idea of financial management of an international system, um, in many senses, including to specific states, uh, Israel being a classic example. And I think that it is no accident that you have in Europe, I can't speak for the United States. Both far left and far right critics of uh, NATO and of engagement in support of Ukraine.
4: Alex Watson. I I thought those were all really interesting points. Um, I suppose my thought would be, of course, it's a truism to say that the geopolitical situation is is, is specific. One can say that about any period and it's, 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 it's true that we are in a specific moment of, 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 of history and Russia's relationship with Ukraine and with the West. I suppose in terms of just trying to sort of think about a longer term framework, maybe the first point I'd make is that this attempt that we're seeing now to snuff out Ukrainian nationhood is clearly not the first by a long way in cultural terms and even in terms of statehood I mean the current iteration of the Ukrainian state is the post-91 state is 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 not the first iteration we we saw Ukraine as a state in the immediate aftermath of the first world war and of course that was snuffed out by a mix of Polish and Russian Bolshevik action Um, and I think I think we can go back further than that I mean of, of course Dave's gone back even further and talked about Catherine the Great, but it strikes me that all of this was written on the First World War. And I'm just very struck by thinking about 1914, some of the parallels, um, particularly so I'm just going back to Dominic Levens' book, you know, he—he, it's he, uh, called Towards the Flame. He talks about Ukraine as the key factor in uh, Russia's, in, in what Russia saw was at stake in this conflict. I, I, I don't know what the other participants of this discussion will think about that. But it does make me think that when we think about the possibility of great power conflict, we think about Russia's relationship or the Russian state's relationship with Ukrainians, then 1914 might be a good place to look to. Certainly, I mean, of course, in that context, we're talking about Western Ukraine, Western Ukraine, what at that time was Eastern Galicia and the Habsburg Empire. That's already been mentioned, sometimes called the piedmont of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, I'll say one other thing. One of the things that I've been really struck by is the work that I've done on the Eastern Front in the First World War, on the, on the Imperial Russian invasion of what today is Western Ukraine and at that time was in Habsburg hands. There's, there's extraordinary parallels in terms, not simply of the violence, of the brutality of the atrocities, but also in terms of the attacks on Ukrainian elites, uh, political elites, the Ukrainian national idea, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, um, very strong parallels between 1914 and today. And it does just make me think that to fully understand this, I think it is helpful to think about the broader Russian state's relationship with Ukrainians, and its fear of Ukrainian nationalism as well, and what that means for Russian aspirations for great power.
2: Uh, If Putin wants to be seen as a modern-day gatherer of the Russian lands, why didn't he so far concentrate on what would seem to be easier pickings of Belarus and in the border areas of Kazakhstan rather than Ukraine?
3: Well, I I think Belarus is, to a certain extent, a client state of Russia at the present moment and actually serves his purposes uh, quite well. And to a degree, as is shown by the recent deployment of Russian troops in Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan is also a client state. I think the issue in Ukraine was that um, Russian coercion, uh, subversion, large-scale subversion, very with large enormous amounts of money and military intervention has failed to have the impact that the Russians, might, the Russian leadership might well have anticipated. So I think in many senses, the intervention in, in Ukraine reflects its unwillingness to become part of the Russian system. And that does not all go well for other countries that border Russia. Um, and interestingly enough, this goes back. I mean, I, I, I think my colleagues are making fascinating points. This goes back to, I think, what's a key moment in the Cold War, which is that possibly one of the most dangerous, uh, to my mind, moments in the Cold War was the um, so-called Carnation Revolution when um, the Salazarist system was overthrown in Portugal. And there was the possibility of a communist takeover and uh, Not least with quite strong communist elements in the military. And of course, a period of time when the West was otherwise engaged. The United States was engrossed in the Watergate issue. Uh, Britain was very weak etc etc um, and I think what was real and of course Portugal was important because with Portugal you are actually still had at that stage Portugal's overseas empire but also Portugal would have given the Soviet Union a major naval base on the Atlantic. Now what was I think really important in um, uh, the and it was a, you know it was a slow moving crisis with a number of a lot of subversion a lot of money spent by both sides I and mean, Britain and the United States uh, uh, opposed to the Soviet Union. Um, I, so it was a slow moving crisis. One of the key elements was that there was no land frontier across which the Soviet Union could move troops in, and that in naval terms, although it could deploy submarines in into uh, portuguese waters it actually lacked um a force of um amphibious uh, landing craft it lacked it lacked the necessary uh, force structure and doctrine to carry out such an operation, and obviously um, the this wad this was quite clearly an absolutely central NATO uh, interest. I mean, you know, bound up with the future of Atlantic power. Because with Portugal, you were talking about the Azores as well and Madeira. Um, now, I think the difficulty at the present moment is that the Russian method of using force is clearly readily could be rolled out in other contexts. I mean, it's appalling what's going on in Ukraine. Um, It also, quite frankly, represents to my mind, I mean, just as you know, we're all We're all noting the failure of the Russians to achieve their purposes on their timetable, and I believe most commentators are very pleased about that. Um, But there is also the problem that the whole crisis has reflected a failure of Western deterrence. Um, the, The failure of Western deterrence in the sense that obviously Ukraine was not covered by Western treaties, but it was part of the international order. It was a sovereign state. It directly abuts four NATO powers. um, And the very fact, and there was extensive intelligence information prior to the crisis to an extent that was not true of most international crises of the last 50 years, and that actually represents quite a triumph for Western, specifically British and American, intelligence gathering. Now, given that that was the case, what is striking is how weak um, the deterrents operated, and that is not encouraging uh, for other respects. Now, what it means, presumably, is that Western strategists are needing to think about how to restructure, revivify um, deterrents, they're needing to think about how to construct a narrative out of this crisis that enhances deterrence, and they're needing to ensure that there is. Um, a element of what one could call what I heard an American diplomat last week referred to as a strategic defeat for the united states uh, sorry a strategic defeat for the uh, for for Russia in order to construct that as a way to as it were drive home a lesson that hopefully that these techniques will not be repeated elsewhere because um, you know, one's got to be clear about this. You might say, oh, well, the Russians wouldn't do it against Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, because, or Poland or Romania, uh, because they're members of of NATO. Well, <laughs> there needs to be some sense that there is going to be a deliverable Consequence, And I'm not sure that if I was a Russian policymaker playing very hard ball, I mean, I might be completely furious with the, with the poor uh, performance of my own system. Uh, I don't think I'd be terribly impressed uh, by my opponent's ability uh, to create an effective deterrence, because ultimately the point recurs if the Russians are willing to use and to produce a serious threat of use of nuclear weaponry, is there going to be an effective Western deterrence? And I'm not sure that actually pertains. What I understand at the present moment is that the intelligence readings are that Russia is not going to use um, nuclear weaponry in the Ukraine crisis, and that that is one of the reasons why the West is deploying arms on the Scale that it is. Uh, if that assessment is flawed, then we're obviously in some considerable difficulties. But that is what I understand the current intelligence assessment to be.
1: Chris? Um, I just wonder whether we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. I mean, I quite agree with Jeremy of what he said about the escalation dominance that Putin has had in the run-up to this war and throughout but i want to come back to to your question charles and i want to take issue a little bit with the the phrase gather of the uh, russian lands um which sort of suggests itself as a result of the conversations we've been having so far but it also um conjures up an image of actual territorial possession and I don't think that uh, Putin's strategy is necessarily aiming at that. Um, so Belarus, effectively dependent on Russia and increasingly so since the uh, domestic unrest uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Kazakhstan, likewise, um, very much dependent on, on the Russian market uh, and the sizable presence of a Russian ethnic minority in Kazakhstan uh, um, means that Kazakhstan has to lean towards uh, Moscow and in fact the speed with which Moscow has responded to the uh, turmoil in Belarus uh, and the um, sporadic unrest in uh, Kazakhstan uh, at the end of last year I think shows that Russia's perfectly capable of maintaining order there or has been perfectly capable of maintaining order in uh, in this uh, in this region in these regions which are part of what Moscow considers to be Russia's sphere of influence. Now, as for Ukraine, I think this is where longer term developments do come in and where history does play a role or a, a very garbled perhaps version of history um going back perhaps even to the Kievan Rus um and and uh, the the notion that this is the the cradle of of, of russian orthodox uh, civilization um but at, the, at at the root of all of this is that ukraine is strategically much more important um and uh, economically more important and that ukraine is more um Should we say, um, conscious of its own separate identity, of its own nationhood. And this is a process that has, of course, been gathering pace in recent years. And I think this made the situation in um, Ukraine much more pressing uh, from a Russian perspective. Uh, And then you have a situation... um, where uh, a cumulative sense of grievances comes into play we've touched on that a little bit where um, western governments have not really responded to russian probing whether that was with the annexation of crimea or elsewhere in the donbass for instance um, and where there have been changes in government uh, in the west uh, America's precipitate uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, etc., etc. So all of this would then suggest that this was the moment to move uh, and not to wait wait any longer.
2: Uh, But Thomas, would you then not necessarily agree with Jeremy's point that the whole invasion and the build-up to it represents a failure of Western deterrence?
1: Um, No, I do agree with that. Uh, And as I said, Putin has so far has had escalation dominance um, and quite clearly we need and and, uh, far too much uh, of um, uh, current Western debate uh, in in various European countries revolves around the uh, spectre of uh, the Russian use of nuclear weapons um and uh if i were sitting uh in moscow i think my impression would be much the same as jeremy's um um the west doesn't have a clear uh, strategy for dealing with russia and is resorting to ad hoc measures um and um the threat of uh the use of mil- of, of nuclear uh, weaponry might well uh, Cow uh, the Western power. So uh, there is some, There is an urgent need to rethink uh, NATO's nuclear strategy. Um, we've not really had any thought being spent on this since, <laughs> since 1967 <laughs> in any meaningful sense. Um, so I think this is an urgent necessity, absolutely.
0: Still? So a, a couple things. We, we wandered a little far afield from the original question about um, Belarus and Kazakhstan, but I, I did want to talk for a bit about, um, Charles, the phrase you used, failure of deterrence. And I'm, I'm not sure that failure of deterrence is really the right way to think about what's happened in Ukraine. Because the whole point of deterrence is to make a rational opponent think, wow, it would be dumb for me to do that because the pain would be too great. Um, and uh, deterrence doesn't fail when somebody does something stupid. Um, and I think, to be brutally frank about it, Putin made a dumb move when he invaded Ukraine and has done an irreparable damage to Russia. Um, and so I think the consequences have shown that, that, that Russia has ended up in a, in, a, in a bad place as a result of what it's done in Ukraine. Um, so I don't think that's a failure of deterrence. I think it shows that deterrence would have deterred a rational actor or one that, uh, an actor that properly perceived the costs of actions. Uh, and I think it's hard to say that, that Putin properly perceived the cost of, of what he was going to do in Ukraine. So that, that's a quick point I would make about um, failure of deterrence. Um, in terms of the, the the question you raised about the gathering of the Russian lands, there's um, a kind of pedantic historical point to make, which is that um, the the phrase "gathering of the Russian lands" refers to the process of pulling Russian peoples together um, after uh, the Kievan Rus, the ancestral Russian state, had been shattered by the Mongols. Um, that took place in the 1500s and was and, and culminated under Ivan III, Third. Um, And that didn't include Belarus, and it didn't include Ukraine, and it didn't include Kazakhstan. So historically, the gathering of the Russian lands doesn't include any of the places that we've been talking about. Um, And then finally, on the situation today, um, I would would not agree with Jeremy's statement that Kazakhstan is a client state. Um, I think Kazakhstan and the other states of Central Asia have been very conscious about their vulnerable position between two very large neighbors, Russia and China, uh, and then a large outside player the United States. Um, and have attempted, with varying degrees of success, to try to balance among various forces. Um, I think the thing that explains um, non-Russian action in Belarus and Kazakhstan is that Putin is getting what he wants, and that is primarily not joining Western institutions. Um, Lukashenko in Belarus has been very good at navigating between, uh, up up until recently, kind of tacking between Russia and the West, but not making any moves to join NATO, but not making any moves towards the European Union. Um, And Kazakhstan, likewise, uh, largely for geographical reasons, has has made no moves to join Western institutions, unlike Ukraine. Um, And so Putin has no need to intervene forcibly in Belarus or in Kazakhstan simply because those states aren't doing the things that he doesn't want them to do. Hope that made sense.
2: It did,
4: actually, very much so. Alex Watson? So those are all very full answers. I suppose one way of thinking about this is we could question whether this isn't actually a failure of deterrence because for two reasons. I mean, we've got NATO, as, as, as Jeremy said, and in that sense, NATO has been an effective deterrence. One of the reasons why Poland and, and the Baltic states were so keen to get into NATO was precisely because they had a longer view of history, a longer view of the Russian state's role in that history as a threat to their existence, both in cultural and in statehood terms. And they got into NATO as quickly as humanly possible that they could do. And from the perspective of 25 years down the line that seems like a very 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 sensible move because that deterrent has been affected it's not poland that is under attack it's not lithuania it's not latvia it's not estonia If you think about what the west was trying to do in with with ukraine i'd question whether there was actually a real effort at deterrence if we think about um, if we think about Western and Central Europe as a whole, and military spending, of course, that's that's been uh, dropping through the past decades. And if we think about Germany's strategy towards Putin, it very much wasn't about deterrence. Instead, it was about integrating Russia into the economy. There is an argument, which unfortunately doesn't seem to have uh, proven correct, but there is an argument that the more economically interlinked states are, the less likely they are to go to war. If we go back to the First World War, I think. I think We see that falling apart. We've seen it falling apart in the case of Germany's uh, fuel relationship uh, with with Russia. But nonetheless, I'd question whether in regard to Ukraine as as opposed to in regard to NATO member states, the West really did do deterrence. I think that suggests far too much unity in what we determine in, in what we call the West, the policies of Britain, US, Germany. Poland, France, actually all look very different. And despite the unity of the West during this crisis, we've we've, we've seen those variations. And beyond that, I, I think that attempts to integrate Russia, at least economically, is at least as important in uh, Western strategies to manage Russia's deterrences over the past decades.
2: Following up from Alex's point, would you say that there was a failure of Western imagination about how far Putin would go and was the West overly dependent upon the so-called Minsk Accord a Minsk process um, from uh, 2014 onwards to sort of paper over the cracks that the Russian annexation of Crimea and the subsequent actions in Donbass had
3: inspired? Jeremy? Well, I certainly think, you know, first of all, earlier this year, there were attempts to use the intelligence information to talk to the Russians and it didn't work. Now you could or you could not, if you like, call that deterrence, that's a matter of opinion. That certainly didn't work. Um, Whilst I agree with Daniel that it's gone badly wrong for Russia at the present moment, and I'm very pleased that that is the case, In the wider strategic terms, and my prime interest is strategy, I'm not so comfortable. As far as we can tell, the crisis has consolidated relations between Russia and China, which weakens the West vis-a-vis both of them. And what it has also shown is Europe's dependence on America, And as Alexander just mentioned, on NATO. And if I was Vladimir Putin, I would be hoping sincerely that Trump wins the next election. I noticed that the Republican candidate, I think named Vance, who's just won the primary in Ohio, um, has criticised um, America's Um, support for Ukraine. So I would be much less sanguine about Russia having failed in a strategic sense. I mean, it has certainly shown great incompetence, operational inability, and a whole host of other practical weaknesses. But I think we need to be aware there are serious strategic flaws on the part of the West. And I'm not as sanguine as most people are. Thomas?
1: Likewise, I'm not at all sanguine uh, about this. Uh, Short term, uh, the current crisis has galvanised opinion, uh, has hardened um, uh, the uh, stance of the uh, Europeans. It has given the Europeans a sense of Um, geopolitical direction Uh, all of that is to the good I think it has also um, perhaps uh, woken up uh, British foreign policy makers to the difficulties of integrating Russia I mean Britain wasn't actually all that different in in her approach to Russia from uh, the approach chosen by uh, the Germans Uh, only there was far less uh, energy or fuel dependence on on Russia, but there was a dependence of a different kind, of course, Um, but there was also a reluctance to uh, engage with um, uh, Russian provocations. Um, And really, this goes back uh, to the mid-1990s. I mean, after all, Britain was one of the guaranteeing uh, powers of the budapest agreement under which the ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons in in 1994 uh, in return for security guarantees and in fact it has to be said that um certainly after 2010 there was a um a, a conscious neglect almost of um britain's uh, responsibilities towards uh ukraine under that agreement and it was then perhaps no surprise that it was the French and the Germans who ended up um, trying to settle um, the Ukraine-Russia dispute uh, after 2014. And the British were not at all involved in, in any of this. Um, and they really only woke up uh, to the Russian threat um, in uh, at some point in 2020 or even late uh, last year. Um, So in in that sense, I think it is fair to say that there has been uh, a failure of deterrence because there was no clear strategic approach um, towards the problem of how to deal with Russia. uh, And that is something that needs to be thought through. Um, And um, I'm perhaps less convinced than Jeremy is that the relationship between Russia and China is, I mean, yes, consolidated, I can see that. Um, it seems to me that, um, however, a, a weakened Russia and a Europe or a Western world preoccupied with European affairs is very much to the advantage of China. Um, so I think there's, there, there has been a change in the power relationship between Moscow and Beijing, um, which has shifted towards uh, China in, in, in favor of China. Uh, I think that needs to be borne in mind. Um, and certainly the, the great unknown is, um, what might happen, um, when the, uh, the next, in, in 2024, the, the, the when the next American presidential elections uh, come about, even if Trump is not elected, um, one could well imagine that, um, a Republican candidate, given the state of the Republican party today, would pursue a far less supportive policy, supportive of NATO and supportive of, of the Europeans. So there are an awful lot of very hard questions that uh, NATO, the Europeans and individual national governments need to think about.
0: Uh, so a, a couple things. I mean, one, I'll note the irony that you're asking um, for historians to predict the future. And if we were any good at that, we would be uh, <laughs> rich from investing in the stock market and we, we would be able to quit our day job. So I will note that it's, that's always uh, an iffy proposition. So two things. You, you raise this by talking about the issue of Minsk sp- specifically, and the conversation has turned more towards a discussion of where we go from here. Um, one of the, I'll just say very quickly about Minsk uh, and the Minsk agreement. Um the Russians put a big emphasis on it. Um, certainly France and Germany, which brokered it, um, at least paid lip service to it. I haven't seen a lot of pressure from the United States on Ukraine to implement Minsk. Uh, the Ukrainians certainly weren't that interested in implementing Minsk because Minsk was a bad deal for the Ukrainians. Uh, it essentially would have allowed a kind of um, fifth column inside Ukraine for Russia to manipulate. And so I, I absolutely understand uh, Ukraine's rel- reluctance to, to implement that. And certainly it's been far, far overtaken by events. Um in terms of where we go from here, uh, I would absolutely agree um, that things can always go wrong. You can look at lots of things where this could turn badly for the West. Uh, but again, as historians, uh, we're not great at predicting the future. The, the, the future will be very difficult to say. Well, yeah, I can imagine things, ways in which things go very well. Um, what I can say is that I myself have been really struck by how well things have gone um, compared to what we might have expected before all that kicked off. Um, certainly, uh, the, the vast majority of, the, of the, the tribute for this goes to the Ukrainians who have been fighting much harder and more effectively and with a much greater sense of nationhood than I think anyone outside of Ukraine really expected. Um, we have been astonished by the solidarity of the Ukrainian nation. Um, and so everything else follows from that. Um, the Russian military uh, attacks have been going far worse than I think anyone expected. Uh, Russia has paid an enormous price in terms of not just the lost lives, um, but, uh, damage to its economy, um, flight of brains and capital from Russia. Um, NATO has been astonishingly solid. I was, I, there's no way I would have predicted the unanimity, um, and alignment of NATO countries, uh, around this cause. Um, Germany has now pledged to per- spend 2% of its GDP on defense, and German economy is pretty big. And 2% of the German economy on defense would make an enormous difference uh, to NATO's conventional capabilities. Finland and Sweden look like they're heading at top speed towards joining NATO. Um, and I would echo Thomas's point that China has not been full-throated in its defense of Russia in this. So, so far, I have to say, I think things have been going much better than expected. Don't get me wrong. This is an enormous human tragedy. Um, And the the, the cost of this to the Ukrainian people are enormous. That said, um, I think there's a lot that we have seen that is better than we would have expected. And we need to recognize that while still being cognizant of the ways in which this
4: could turn bad. So I'll stop with that.
2: Alex Watson,
4: I think really to echo Dave's point, to be honest with you, we can can talk about the the sort of medium term projections and worries for the West of, of closer Russo-China relations or what if Trump gets in but I mean to be honest with you it does seem a bit theoretical given how fast-paced and and unfamiliar in many ways the 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 current events are and to me it does it it does seem that the lesser questions at the moment are for NATO and the US and the bigger questions are for Russia and how Russia gets itself out or, or deals with or fails to deal with the fix that that Putin has has got that state into um yeah i i i I've, <sighs> i wouldn't want to predict the future at the moment because because i think after 30 years of of, of relative stability in, in 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 europe we are in uncharted waters but i think at the moment it's russia that uh, uh, it, it, you know it, it's Russia that all eyes are on the only other thing that I'd add in terms of, sort of future prospects I, I think that NATO's unity so quickly and, and the strength of economic sanctions against Russia is very very important and a very very good sign for the strength of the West I think that will leave that, that will leave a very strong resonance even after this crisis is over or as it develops
2: Gentlemen any last thoughts
4: Jeremy you first
3: well, yes. First of all, I think this is a very helpful and useful uh, way of looking at things. I think it's very good to bring together four historians. And uh, uh, without disagreeing with uh, with David about it might seem ironic to ask historians to consider the future. And I think the point is that what we're trying to argue is a need for caution in response to immediate judgments of the present and the past and in a sense we're being asked to add awkward or maybe not so awkward contextual explanations or at least situations and i do think historians do do that better than most people it doesn't mean that they're all wise they're certainly not seers or prophets Um, but i do think that exercise is important with reference to the last comments, I mean, you know, I'm a pessimist, so you always hear pessimism from me. Um, what I find worrying is that compared, and I am concerned about China, compared to China, Russia is, I think, militarily weaker. Um, and there is a more united opposition to Russia in the shape of NATO, uh, whereas, as we know, for example, relationships between, shall we say, Japan, uh, South Korea, the Philippines, Vietnam, etc., don't add up to the same degree of coherence. So I would like to see um, a more significant failure for Russia, Because otherwise, I am worried about, A, what might happen if this particular crisis in Eastern Europe continues, and B, what might happen in other crises or potential crises where the situation may be less um, hopeful or helpful. So you know, I am adding a a cautious note. And lastly, I have an interest, of course, in military history, um, and any any work on military history has to uh, consider uh, the present and indeed the future. What I think the a lot of the discussion, to my mind, of this crisis underlines is the extent to which, as always, people would rather discuss um, uh, weaponry, tactics, and operational level things rather than ask hard questions about strategy. And to my mind, what this actually underlines is the need to think very hard about strategic questions.
1: Well, um, I think Jeremy's concluding um, statement very much chimed in with what I said earlier uh, about the need to pose some very hard questions um, which Western governments collectively and individually um, have to ponder um, and they go well beyond how to deal with Russia well beyond a new European security architecture they also touch on questions um such as the Indo-Pacific region and what um uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um what consequences the Russian invasion of Ukraine might uh trigger in in uh, in, in that um region um I think if history teaches us anything, it needs to be a little more sceptical. I mean, yes, uh, the Western response so far has been very pleasing, I'm very pleased about it, I'm quite surprised about some of it, positively surprised uh, by some of this, but we mustn't delude ourselves into thinking that um, Russia is completely isolated. Um, Yes, the Europeans have severed their ties, the Americans have severed their ties, they've imposed sanctions, etc um china exercises a curious sort of hold over russia in some to some degree and i suspect that at some point the chinese will probably tell the russians to stop because there's far too much russian uh, chinese money invested in uh ukraine and ukraine is far too important for the chinese economy to allow china to um uh, to, to see uh, uh ukraine completely uh destroyed But at the same time, India has not supported um, anti-Russian measures. Many of the Latin American and African countries have not done so. And so one can see almost, you can see the old non-aligned bloc re-emerging in this new post-2022 international environment. So there are an awful lot of... um, developments are on the way now that I think give cause for concern um, in addition to the many points that, um, that I think are cause for concern that we covered in our, in, in our conversation. So um, my views are sort of optimism at the way in which things have played out so far but mingled with a, um, a sense of scepticism, shall we say.
0: David Stone, I've had a chance to say most of what I wanted to say, and I'll echo Jeremy's comment of uh, appreciating the chance to have this exchange of views. Let me just make one kind of military technical point. Um, Jeremy rightly stressed that it's important to think strategy first and, and then operations and tactics flow from that. Uh, on the other hand, you can't have strategy without tactics and operations to, to produce it. Uh, and, and one of the things that's been really striking about this, the, the two months of this war is just what we're learning about the importance of drones, um, the increasing deadliness of anti-tank missiles, um, and the effectiveness of anti-ship missiles. And certainly there's been signs of these things before. Um, The Yom Kippur War in 1973 sort of signaled to the world that anti-tank missiles were were a a real presence on the battlefield. And the Falklands War demonstrated the vulnerability of ships to um, anti-ship missiles. Um, And the Armenia-Azerbaijan War quite recently showed the importance of drones. But you're seeing all of that, I think, in magnified form in the current conflict. The big question is whether um, that's in part because of Russia's mismanagement of the war. Um, would a a better Russian military performance have made these things less evident? Uh, But it's at least something I think that military planners uh, will need to to bear in mind going forward. And I'll I'll stop with that. Thanks. Alex?
4: So, uh, again, I I think it's pretty much all being said. I'd I'd echo Jeremy's point about strategy. I I think that uh, this is an incredibly dangerous situation overall. Um, But if, if there is any optimism i think that one one source of that might be the fact that the us has now uh promised these 47 billion dollars towards the us which is certainly very 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 it's huge military and and economic support and does give the indication that there is some longer term game plan here some longer term strategy here but what it is i guess depends very much on on how this war plays out how long it goes on for, whether it escalates and how destructive it will ultimately be.
1: On that
2: observation, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much. You've been listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on New Books Network, and we've been speaking to Jeremy Black, Thomas Ante, David Stone, and Alex Watson. Again, gentlemen, thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with me today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.